AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for June 14th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Joe Harton. Welcome, Joe. Hello. Joe, you work a lot on our threat analysis platform. Any big developments lately? Uh, we're just trying to keep up with the threats that are out there. They're, they never stop coming, so we never need stop. to just grow and get ready to take a look at everything that's out there. It keeps so. getting bigger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I think we're, our jobs are secure for a while. Hopefully. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have John Hogelum here. How you doing? Welcome, John. Back from vacation. Back from vacation. Ready to do some security stuff again. All right. Again. Glad, to, <laughs> glad to have you here. And online, we have John Markley. Welcome, John. It's been a while. Yep, thank you for having me back again. All right, and I'm Brian Rexrode, and let's uh, get into the first story here. We'll go to you, Joe. Okay. And, um, you know, I guess uh, a lot of virtualization activities going on. Uh, you know, across the industry, and yeah. so uh, a lot of attention being paid to how that virtualization is working. Yeah, so this was an interesting um, piece that came out in some of the publications from the Bitdefender antivirus company. Mm -hmm. uh, they were doing some research on, actually, they were trying to research malicious outbound activity, and they sort of stumbled upon a method for uh, exploiting the cloud, really. Mm. And what they found is that if, if you can get at the hypervisor, you can extract the TLS keys. So it's not really an exploit of TLS, it's, it's more a way to, to grab the keys. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to have access to the hypervisor. Um, so this is a, it's kind of a wiretap, a snooping, eavesdropping, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. It's a way to, basically how the, the attack works is if you uh, dump the memory while the TLS handshake is going on, you can extract the keys out of the mem dump. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty advanced way to get at those keys, but um, you know they did did track it down, and um, you know some of the dangerous byproducts here is that you know this can decrypt all communications between the tenant mm -hmm. and end users, and there's really not much of a footprint here, so there's no way to tell how long some this the communications have been decrypted, and it's really you know you have to sort of look at the size of the mem dumps in order to really uh, diagnose that this has happened. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's really an interesting and kind of dangerous thing that's, that's it was published by Bitdefender at a, a conference, the Hack in the Box conference in Amsterdam. You know, it does only work with the hypervisor, so it's m more at the provider level. Mm -hmm. So in the public clouds like Amazon, Google, DigitalOcean, Microsoft. So if you can prevent access to the hypervisor, you know, you can be sure this isn't happening, but if you don't mm -hmm. own the hardware, if you don't own the metal, um, you're not really sure that this isn't going on in your cloud. So. Well, actually, that's a, a very good point. So there are a lot of good advantages from a security standpoint in the cloud environment in the sense that it provides a lot of structure that to help manage systems, the updates, a lot of consistency. It also allows a lot of, aside from security, a lot of better efficiency in terms of using systems, but I guess, excuse me, as you point out, the, um, the security of the tenants really depends on the security of the hypervisor, and this is a case where 
you know, in, in a sense, you almost can think of the bare metal as the hypervisor in this case, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a control factor. You know, when you're in the cloud, you're you're giving up a little bit of control. You know, mm -hmm. somebody else is is in control of your security of your uh, application to some degree, and it's you know, this is this is the type of thing that you have to be wary of. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're going into the cloud, is that you know, you have to make sure the right security is in place, and even if it is in place, you know. You have to make sure your cloud mm -hmm. provider, you know, no, no longer is it exclusively your responsibility to protect your uh, assets. It's now you and your cloud provider. So mm -hmm. it's a uh, it's a control trade-off. Yeah, uh, I mean, control one one person's control is another person's benefits, right? Yeah, so overhead. If, right? if you're not concerned about, if you really want to focus on your application and uh, don't really want to be concerned about managing the system itself and the uh, the underlying, you know, support of that cloud infrastructure, it's a, uh, it becomes a service for them. So right, yeah, it's definitely absolutely. a trade-off. Yep, very good. I was going to yep. say the, um, I think it's interesting how they kind of came across this because thinking like we do when you're doing malware analysis, and I think that's probably where this originated from. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times we do malware analysis on virtualized environments, but if the malware is using HTTPS as part of its communication. There's really no way, even you know, even when you're on the machine, to really effectively intercept that communication mm -hmm. and decrypt it without doing some kind of weird proxying type of thing. So I think this is an interesting technique for malware analysis, which is probably why they invented it, uh, to get right into the hypervisor, sneak in, get the keys, decrypt, so you, the malware doesn't even know you're in there, right. being able to intercept and view its communications. Mm -hmm. uh, but then once they came up with that, they said, well, wait a second. Somebody could do this in any virtualized environment, right. yeah. potentially here. So interesting uh, kind of pivot of that technique. But you know, sometimes things that are made for good can often be exploited yeah. for bad purposes too. Not to say anybody's doing that, but yeah. that's what their cautionary uh, tale is. You're here, absolutely guess, right. right. And you know, it, what's actually surprising to me is how many security issues are discovered by accident. Yeah, yeah. Right. So. All right, so uh, you know the next next story that uh, I'll go ahead and cover this one here. Um, DeRay McKesson is an activist, and uh, you know basically what had ended up happening to him, he was the victim of an attack. Attackers gained access to a cell phone account. Now this wasn't an AT&T account, but ultimately what it came down to is his his mobile service provider was social engineered, and they were able to gain access to the account. And I think this is one of the fundamental challenges that. As a service provider, it's the balance between providing friendly customer service. Right. You know, I've got a problem yeah. with my service. Please help me fix it. Yeah. Versus the, uh, you know, basically providing good security. And you know, unquestionably, the mobile service provider made a mistake here. So let's put that on the table for the moment. Ultimately, what ended up happening is that the attackers were able to uh, gain access to his phone number and consequently gain access to his SMS messages. Now he had had what we're going to call two-factor authentication set up on apparently a couple of email accounts as well as its Twitter account. Ultimately what it came down to is uh, they were able to bypass the two-factor authentication and gain access to those accounts. Now the question is, if you have two-factor authentication, how did this happen? Well, you know, when we think about two-factor authentication, there are actually two things that are generally associated with two-factor authentication. Something you have and something you know. Now in this case, they were really kind of, I guess, using the notion of having access to SMS as one of those factors. 
and presumably your password being your know, password for access to the account being the other factor, something you have and something you know. Now, I think the real definition of two-factor really is something you physically have, physically a physical have, right. thing, not access to a particular account, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let that slide for a moment here. Ultimately, what ends up happening in this particular case is, um, and I, I can't speak for the email accounts, but I think there are a lot of accounts to do this. I don't want to pick on Twitter in particular, but in this particular case, Twitter allows you to reset your password exclusively using SMS. So you have the option of having the password sent to you by email or having it sent to you by SMS. And you know, Brian Krebs had pointed out some time ago as, as a part of his book, Spam Nation, I think it was actually a, an addendum to the book where he points out that you know, your crown jewels are effectively accessed to your email. That is, almost any account you have anywhere, if somebody gets access to your email, they can get a password reset and have it sent through accounts. email. Well, this is a case where you get the choice between SMS or email. Uh, in this case, they got access to SMS, were able to reset his password, gain access to the Twitter account, and, uh, and post, you know, effectively, I guess, some abusive messages. I didn't actually see the messages. But ultimately, what it comes down to is I think, you know, yes, the mobile service provider made a mistake here. Uh, it's very difficult to balance when somebody comes in and says, you know, I need uh, help with my service. Uh, but this is a case where two-factor authentication is being misrepresented. It is not two-factor authentication unless you have to have both things in order to gain access to the account. So, and this is uh, just a snapshot of what the uh, Twitter uh, reset is. You know, you have the radio button to choose between a text code that is SMS or an email link, having a, a link sent through email to uh, regain access to it. And they even, you know, give you the last two digits of the phone number to so that you can verify that it's going to go to the phone number that you're uh, you're expecting. So, the question I would have is, you know, uh, on your mobile device you can get like the RSA app mm -hmm. for the RSA token. It's a soft, I guess, whatever. Do and I've never really looked into this myself. Does anybody know if is that portable? Like, could you? Port that, that to another device, or is it actually physically tied to like the hardware ID of your device? That key. I don't know for certain. My my understanding is that it's actually tied to the device, but ultimately I think it's coming down to the the isolation of the app itself is the boundary of security there. So it's I don't think it's actually proving that you have that mobile device. It's really basically proving that you have that app. Hmm. Okay. But you know that there. I am not aware of any situations where that's been compromised at this point, but it's uh, you know it's certainly one of these things that ultimately is going to be put to the test in the long yeah, run. Yeah, and even if you had a smart device and had something else on there that could access what was happening with the RSA mm -hmm. app, it could be shuttling off the numbers as they come out. I don't know. Yeah. Just thinking out loud, but it seems like it's very hard unless you have one of those little physical tokens that have no access mm -hmm. to anything else yeah. that just display a number. You know, that's really the only. 100% surefire way, yep. I guess. The least convenient, but the, probably the most secure. In fact, right. you know, there was a time ago when, um, and, and you know, and this was many years ago, probably 15, well, maybe even 20 years ago, IBM started incorporating hardware into their laptops that, uh, that basically provided some security features, it, you know, as an isolated hardware component, yeah. but it added cost to the devices, mm -hmm. and I think ultimately it wasn't competitive perhaps before its time. I think if somebody were to reintroduce something like that, particularly in a mobile device, that basically to have some hardware in the device that's dedicated to providing an authentication capability, you know, maybe a little segment of the display that's dedicated to that function, 
would potentially, uh, uh, you know, pay off, and uh, particularly in high high risk environments or high security environments, uh, you know, particularly the financial community where they're concerned about those types of things, very sensitive about their devices they purchase and that right, type right. of thing. So, um, you know, we'll have to see as time goes on of whether this type of thing goes uh, it develops a, a, a lot better. And I know, you know, there's work that's being done to help tie the actual registration process. You know, the SIM card is very difficult to, to clone. Uh, you, you actually have, you at least have to gain physical access to it at the very least. So mm -hmm. uh, that's a case where there's uh, some good possibility in improving the verifying that you have, you know, that you physically have something. So, John Markley, let's go to you. And, um, you know, there were some accusations here. I think those have been uh, swayed a bit, but hopefully uh, you can help us a little bit more to provide some personal assurance. Yeah, I don't know if I can give you a whole bunch of personal assurance, but I did want to you know, just mention that uh, there was an accusation or really some research that uh, tried to indicate that, you know, Facebook has a feature where it listens in on your microphone and tries to direct uh, certain content to you based upon contextual, uh, you know, references you might make verbally. The accusation was those verbal cues were being used to direct advertisement to you. So that, you know, if you say, hey, I'm going to go get a drink of water or I'm going to go get a soda, and the next thing you see popped up in Facebook was an ad for Diet Coke. I mean, or, you know, or some other soda, you know, that might be out there. So so the, so the, the, the challenge, you know, was... From a from a privacy perspective, is that getting sent to a server somewhere? Is that getting stored? You know, what is the whole concern? You know, that you might have about you know somebody listening in on your your voice conversation. Mm -hmm. F Facebook has said no. <laughs> you know, this is not true. This is not a concern. It's it's solely for that contextual reference, not advertisement. They're not storing it anywhere. They're not relating it to any other content other than what they explicitly tell you. Mm -hmm. So so that has kind of been disproven and even the researcher who posted it said, well, you know, I was just I was researching this before I got on the news program to, to talk about it. So maybe it's not, you know, as, as severe as I thought it was. <laughs> you know, I think the uh, that the main thing is you and it, it kind of leads to what you were talking about at a, at a different level, but it's, it leads to what you were talking about earlier, Joe, about, you know, when you're using a cloud service, it's, you're, you're entrusting that cloud right. service. And so you really need to have some confidence in uh, the integrity of that service in order right. to... On uh, Facebook, it's what you're sharing, what yeah. sort of privacy you're relinquishing just mm -hmm. by having a presence on Facebook and posting and showing who you're connected to that's mm -hmm. you're you're relinquishing a little bit of yourself that way too mm -hmm. yeah and so. it all comes down to it it becomes more and more difficult to understand where the boundaries are of that sharing so but but to your point john and so, so so one of the things i wanted to talk about here is is that you know we're always concerned about it and we always tell people know your permissions on apps right mm -hmm. you know know them so so what so what i wanted to do is is actually show how to change permissions and I'm picking on Facebook a little bit so I apologize all my Facebook friends and <laughs> colleagues out there at, at Facebook but well actually you know John it's good to point out this isn't necessarily a Facebook specific thing there are other things that ac request access to your microphone and you want to make sure that you know if you're you're granting access that it's for a reason and uh, a good reason and you understand the context of how it gets used and, and then that's exactly so so the shot I, I have here is actually from one of my de personal devices uh, and it's an Apple iOS device, 
I, I did a search in settings for microphone. It popped up the, the privacy part of the settings. This is a fairly new version of Apple iOS. And you'll notice I have three apps that said that they want to use the microphone, mm-hmm. you know, that have, have requested permission. You know, I've, and, and those three apps, you know, I have it turned off. Yay, yay me. But, uh, the, uh, you know, that's the, 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 the key there is, is that those apps are, you know, things that we, you know, we just need to look at. You know, you need to know that when an app is installed, what does it want? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not something you want to give it. Yep. And, and the good thing, at least with here, is I can turn it off, at least this feature, the microphone. And, and you can kind of do it on, on Android as well. So Android's a little bit trickier. Starting with Marshmallow or 6.0, uh, you do have an app permissions by app, and you can go in and, and, and tweak certain things. And here's another example uh, in, you know, that I pulled down uh, from another source. It's not my personal device, but it, it was just that you know, I, you know, I can go and turn certain things on and off based upon uh, the permissions. And these were permissions that were installed or set up when I installed the app. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the neat thing about Android six is that I have this level of granularity. Older versions of Android, not so much. So it is it is very important, especially on older versions of Android, that you know what you're granting an app when you first install it. Mm-hmm. On oh, keep your devices up to date. <laughs> and keep your devices up to date. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. Very good. You know, I was going to mention really quickly that I think last year we covered a very similar story, but not from a voice control. But uh, there's some, I forget what it's called. It's an over-the-air thing when you're watching television. Advertisements can, it's inaudible to the human ear, but they'll kind of spit out a little encoded message Mm -hmm. that your handset can pick up. Right. And then I don't know where that goes, but it's lets certain advertising know some connectivity that to say that mm-hmm. this person was watching this television program or saw this ad mm-hmm. on TV. Um, and I've never really researched it myself to mm-hmm. see how that all works, but I thought that was an interesting, similar kind of privacy issue there. Yeah, if I remember correctly, that was also somewhat of a conjecture scenario that they didn't really know for certain that that was actually taking place, but it was uh, certainly a possibility that it could be, right? Yeah, it's I like mean, it's like locate location services are another example. It's like mm-hmm. you know if I'm playing a game on my computer or my my phone, does it really need to know that I'm you know I'm playing such and such a game that I'm walking through the halls of a mall or I'm walking mm-hmm. you know in a car somewhere? It mm-hmm. Doesn't need to know that. Right. Hopefully right. you're not playing a game right. while you're driving, but still it's you know it, it's it's those things that you just need to know the permissions. Right. Absolutely. All right. So, John, let's go to you. And, you know, we've been uh, tracking these uh, yeah, these device malware things for some time now. And you've done some of your own analysis, and there was an article that showed up here. So maybe a little comparison. Yeah, so this is um, a Virus Bulletin, which we've talked about in the past. They used to be kind of a pay service in order to get their reports, which mm-hmm. were very good contextual reports. But they've since gone to, a, like, an open environment, allowing people to kind of see this stuff. This is an older report. They just put, like, they just released it on Virus Bulletin this month, but it's actually a p- report from September of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it discusses the trends in these DDoS Trojans, mostly kind of focusing in on um, these embedded devices. So we've been mm-hmm. talking a lot over the past few years of these embedded devices getting compromised, having malware put on them and they engage in scanning like the 23 tcp scanning has been very elevated i'll give you my insights into that as we talk about what their report is Mm -hmm. things have changed a little bit i think and this is just some conjecture of my own 
but it's a really good report. I recommend people check it out. Uh, it's from the guys at Avast, who another AV company um, that put this report together. Uh, but they talk about a lot of interesting things in more depth than most um, reporting you get. So they talk about you know, the ELF file format, the different types of architecture like MIPS and ARM type uh, processors that you can mm -hmm. have for the, the, the code, uh, the bot builder tools that are used for these different things so you can build your own malware and how to distribute it um, or how the bad guys would distribute it. And then they also talk about the various families. So when you look at this picture here, the purple stuff is all the DDoS Trojans. And then there's some other families, like in blue there are Trojans. And some of the, the standout ones are like Tsunami, which we run across a lot on these embedded devices that mm -hmm. we're seeing compromised. And a smaller, but still maybe the second largest blue bubble is uh, IDRA, which we talk about a lot also, also mm -hmm. known as Light IDRA. Um, which is a toolkit for uh, embedded malware on these embedded type Linux devices. Uh, but the purple section is the, the one that's the DDoS, which is really their focus. Um, and they talk about the various families. One of them that I think is really the standout, and it's not a big bubble on this chart, uh, Elknot I think is the largest bubble in the lower left-hand side there, which I suspect is not as large as Lizard Stressor is now. Mm -hmm. So in some of the stuff that I've been seeing over the past, whatever, most of this year and this recent uptick, to me, it looks like a lot of these devices are in the lizard stressor, also the, known as G-A-F-G-Y-T. The reason I think that one's most successful is because of all of these families there, that particular family of malware, when it deploys on the machine, so like they scan, they get into it, they brute force the password, they get in, First thing they do is they try to drop every single type. So they'll drop a 32-bit you know, binary, they'll drop a 64-bit, they'll drop a MIPS, they'll drop an ARM, they'll drop a blah, 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 PPC, and they'll try to execute all of them. Whichever one actually runs properly mm -hmm. uh, is the one that takes, and then the thing uh, continues. And if it crashes so, in place, they don't care, right? Right. <laughs> so it's, um, it's the most cross-compiled of all of these families, right. and I think that's why it's been the most successful. Also, the source code was released last year, so it made it a lot more easier for other people to take it, modify it, build their own. Uh, whenever the source code is released, you see these families of malware become a lot more utilized because they don't have yeah. to pay for it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I thought it was, it's an interesting report. They also go over some interesting things about the statistics of the distributions of these and the types of targets that are being targeted. But again, this was um, a, a report from last year, so things have changed a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. but it's not slowed, it's just kind of changed in shape of how mm -hmm. maybe these bubbles would look. Oh, I can't recreate it for our own, we don't have enough data, I don't have enough time. I think the whole rectangle would be filled with one bubble it, right Yeah, now. you probably, yeah, you're probably <laughs> right. Um, but it is, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting report. I think if you're interested in this embedded type of malware, uh, it's a good read. And he mm -hmm. goes over a lot of the interesting aspects of it that I think people um, would find interesting. All right, so. very good. Yeah. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about the continuing observations around yeah. that. Yeah. All right, good. Next thing here I thought we'd cover is uh, actually this is some viewer mail from a, uh, a viewer named Robbie. And uh, he actually pointed out something. First of all, he was having a little trouble with his uh, external hard drive and was doing a little bit of research on what the problem might be. Now, I don't know if this had actually anything to do with the problem that he had, but he you know, discovered that basically some of these drives, they have 
encryption embedded into the external hard drive. And so he was, you know, digging around trying to figure out what might the problem be or how to fix it. It kind of ran across this article about uh, from uh, baldnerd.com. And uh, this is a guy that writes some articles on various topics. And, you know, it, it pointed out a, I think, a significant observation. You know, it's been always, well, not always, but, you know, for some time now, one of my little uh, uh, things to help you know, try to recognize that there's sometimes a trade-off between confidentiality and integrity, those two, you know, principles of security and availability. That is, in order to provide confidentiality and integrity, generally you have to add complexity to the system, which adds points of vulnerability, whereas availability, you want to try to keep it simple and focus on making sure that, you know, traffic gets through as, uh, or, or the data is, um, you it's know, like available. talked about with the factors of authentication. You know, yes. having two or three factors, it's going to slow your access, but it's what you need to make sure you're safe and secure. Right. Yeah, so it's so. A clearly uh, that's a, a data access model, very, very much the point. Even in systems, you know, if you want to make it more available, you replicate it many times, put it in many different places, and so that if you lose it in here or there, but it also makes it more accessible, you know, yeah. more places to attack. So it's those uh, types of things that you have to take into account. But I think what is perhaps more important or to recognize here is you got to ask the question, if you're using encryption, what are you encrypting to protect against? And this is a case where you've got to sort of sit and scratch your head. You've got, you know, this external hard drive that's encrypting the data on the drive and you can unplug the drive and plug it in somewhere else and your data is still accessible. What, what is but that encryption the firmware controller, right, in between. Yeah. So when you have a hard drive, it has kind of a controller that hooks into it mm -hmm. as part of the unit. Yeah. And that's doing the encryption part. So if I, not that I would ever disassemble those, although not to say I haven't <laughs> in the old days, but yeah. most people would not, you know what I yeah. mean? Like if a drive's dead, it's, I'm going to pitch it. Well, in fact, that's a, I think that perhaps may be the case here where he had an availability thing perhaps is that he wanted to take the drive out of the enclosure, perhaps the enclosure had failed and, you know, plug it in somewhere else and try to get the data, but the enclosure had the key. Right. And so once that failed, it basically meant the whole thing had failed. But ultimately, from a secure, you know, an attacker's point of view, they're not going to come in there and you know neatly take your disk drive out. They're going to take the whole thing and you know, right, and just unplug it. <laughs> right, and so because, uh, it, yeah, yeah. So that, that I think that's one of the things. Even inside a computer, if you have uh, encryption on a computer, they're not going to come in and take your drive out. They're going to take the whole computer and you know go and use it. So, um, the really the lesson here I just wanted to sort of point out is that, and consistent with the article. Um, you know, sometimes encryption can provide a false sense of security. You have to really have an understanding of what is being protected, what that encryption is protecting, and how the keys are managed consistent with that protection model. Uh, otherwise, it's uh, perhaps not worth the, uh, the burden. It would actually be, uh, you know, degrading your potential for availability, which is, in fact, a security attribute to be paying attention to. Um, so next thing we're going to do here is uh, we'll hand it over to you, John Markley, and uh, we have a, a little bit of a history quiz. Actually, yep, thank at least you. The first uh, I, I will mention on the last story that the, the baldnerd.com site is not my personal site. <laughs> <laughs> we should thank Robbie, right? Thanks to Robbie for submitting it. Yeah, I, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Robbie, for your uh, for your story. For, Keep them coming. <laughs> So anyway, so, so we're going to start off with a hard question here today. 
and and that is the uh, uh, the first recognizable, and recognizable is always that key ever you know element that we may have to have a debate on. Uh, modern is another one, maybe. Operating system was either Multics, Atlas Supervisor, OS three hundred and sixty, or C- CPM. And I'll, I have to say, I've worked on two of the th- two of the four, and I know the two of the four that I worked on were not the answer. Okay, interesting. Well, I'm going to walk through this here because, well, first of all, I'm going to look at B. Atlas Supervisor to me is completely foreign, so I'm I've going to say that's not it. recognizable. That's probably the that's probably the right answer, but I've never heard of Atlas Supervisor. So now, uh, Multics, I know. Me too. And uh, that, that happened to be, I think, one of the first um, actually operating systems built from the ground up, intended to be a trusted operating system. And uh, so it was intended to provide, you know, uh, separation. And uh, I don't remember exactly, but I, you know, had levels of security associated with it and was done. And it was a very impractical one. I don't think it ever had any uh, uh, practical use associated with it. So that basically leaves us with uh, C and D. Now, OS 360 to me is uh, too new. Yeah, maybe I'm too old, but OS 360, (laughs) I remember using it like on a regular basis when I was an adult. That was a later (laughs) later generation uh, IBM mainframe operating system and a rather sophisticated one that stuck around for a decent amount of time. And uh, the next one being CPM, and I'm, I was kind of leaning guess. towards CPM I'm as well. I'm leaning towards CPM. Being I have one a CPM of the... machine still, yeah. and I have Zork 1 on 8-inch yeah. disk in the original packaging yeah. for CPM. So, uh, John, we're going to, I think, Joe, do you have a different uh, opinion here? Yeah, I'll go with John Hogeboom on this one. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> I'll go with right. my two experts okay. here. All right, so John Markley, the, uh, what, what's the verdict here? I, I need a buzzer to go. We all lose. You had it. You had it guessed right, just with the random guess. It's B. Atlas Supervisor. Oh, oh you got to be kidding me. So it's got to be. It's recognizable. It was a. It was a British. It was a British operating system used for I think Manchester computers. Wow. And wow. Uh, and so it's it's the the key here is recognizable and modern. So you know, of course, when we talk operating system, we want something that's a little bit more divorced from a particular, you know, from a specific set of hardware. So you mm-hmm. can't just say it only runs on this piece of hardware. Mm-hmm. And and so you you the earliest version of that was the Atlas Supervisor. Then came Multics, I think okay. it was second. And then we start walking through the other ones uh, after that. But they've all been around a long time. Atlas Supervisor actually has just, I think in the early or late 90s, early 2000s, finally went away. So it, it was actually persisted for some time in very limited uh, exposure. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. Okay. So, so wait, I got you. I got you with one. All right. So let's see if I get you with two. All right, so the next one here, terminology, and I think, Joe, you got the lead on this one. So go ahead, John. All right, so in mobile parlance, so in mobile tech speak, uh, jailbreak and root uh, refer to things like, uh, for example, A, uh, jailbreak allows unauthorized software. Root is system-level access. B is jailbreak means to allow access to unauthorized users. Root allows access for certain users. C, jailbreak involves changing a loaded app, whereas root means changing a loaded operating system. Or D, the terms are synonymous. I guess if we go through these from the bottom up, I don't think they're synonymous. I don't think that root means changing a loaded operating system, so I don't think that's it either. B, jailbreak means to allow access to unauthorized users. I think jailbreak is more universal access, so I'm going to go with A on this one. Jailbreak allows unauthorized software, and root is system-level access. 
and Joe, Joe got one right. Oh, he did. So we're good. good. I was going to say that's a little <laughs> tricky because some people in the tricky. mobile parlance, jailbreaking rooting is sometimes used They're similarly. Sometimes used synonymously. Where they're like, like I, I rooted I the phone, well, but really root and brick can kind of go. Well, brick. No, brick. bricking is totally different. Well, yeah. I've bricked many a device. A lot of people use them this, to mean the same thing. They say, "I'm going to jailbreak, uh, you know, an Android, you know, or I'm going to root mm -hmm. this Apple." You know, it, it's not. It's not. That's not how it works. I mean, they, they really mean unauthorized access in general, but it's the specific type of unauthorized access that refer. You know, that gets referred to by either jailbreak or root. Mm -hmm. So, so Joe got it right. So jail, jailbreak is just I'm going to load unauthorized software from a non-standard source, mm -hmm. and I've changed the the system to allow that. Whereas root is letting me have that deep dive. I can even change the operating system if I wanted to. All right. Very good. So next one here, and uh, we're going to give uh, John Hogaboom the hardest one. To... Well, <laughs> I'll let him read the read it off first. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So 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 the the, the key here is, and I'm I'm actually going to give you a hint because I'm it's not on the slide, it's not on the read, but I'll, I'm going to tell you. So John, you, you may you may get us uh, an out here. So so the Juno mission will reach Jupiter on July 4th of this year, and how far will Jupiter be from Earth on this date? And, and here's the key or the clue is. This is using satellite with X-Band, and it takes 40 minutes to communicate one way with the satellite, or with the, with the Juno. 40 minutes? Is that what you said? 40 minutes. So what is it, 86,000 uh, <laughs> miles per <laughs> second? You use your watch. Right? <laughs> yeah. so, you got, so you got four choices. It's either A, 300,000 miles, B, 1 billion. We've got to do the, you know, the little 1 billion miles, uh, C, 50 million miles, or D, 470 million miles. Yeah. So I was going to use some cheater math here. Your cheater math? Well, I'll let you do the cheater math. I'm just going to use the lazy, I don't care enough to, <laughs> to do the math. <laughs> but not so I say I don't care enough. But it's not a security thing, so I don't feel bad if I get this wrong. But from playing Kerbal Space Program, <laughs> which I had mentioned that I play, yeah. I'm going to guess it feels like 470 million miles is about right. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. That just feels you know, like... I was going to use a, a, a very similar, lo or, or some logic here. Eight minutes for light to get from the sun to the earth. That's 89, oh, okay. 89 million miles. So there you go. Oh, okay. Well, what's the right answer? It's not a billion, I guess, right? So I'm going with D, 470 million miles. All right. So, so you so all got two out of three right, so that's correct. <laughs> um, it is 470 million miles. 50 million is actually Mars, if you're yeah. just curious. Okay. Um, okay. But it, the, the interesting thing about this whole space probe communication and whatnot is, is how it works. If you ever want to dive into the amount of radio spectrum that we transmit into space, it used to be a lot more. We're, we're a lot more uh, uh, focused now than we used to be. But if you actually look at how noisy space is around Earth, we're sending a lot of, you know, of signals out of the atmosphere. Yep. And so it, it's kind of interesting how they actually communicate with these, these, uh, these missions. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I couldn't help but notice or think about what the tides would be like if Jupiter were 300,000 miles away from the Earth. Yes. <laughs> I don't think we'd have any water left on the planet. I think we'd get ripped apart probably. I think Jupiter would take all our water, yes. So, all right, so let's move on here. Thank you, John, for putting that quiz together for us. It's always a, uh, an entertaining segment. Uh, next thing here is uh, a colleague of ours identified uh, basically a, a, I think he picked this up on Twitter, uh, Twitter feed from a, 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 some activity that was going on. 
but nevertheless, a, uh, recently a vulnerability has been identified associated with Clam antivirus software. Now, if you're not already familiar, Clam antivirus is an open source antivirus tool that is designed more specifically for Unix platforms, which is, you know, relatively, relatively unusual for Unix platforms to have uh, antivirus on it. But there are applications where that is a valuable uh, capability to have in place. So, uh, having a vulnerability associated with that would be obviously something you want to be concerned about. And uh, there was some uh, discussion about having some scanning activity taking place to see how many of these devices were out there. And so the first item in the Internet Weather Report was is actually associated with port 3310 TCP. Um, and it's not officially associated with Clam antivirus, but that certainly is a port that it uses. And uh, there is some scanning activity going on. Near as we can tell, this is all sort of researcher activity. There isn't any malicious intent behind this, but we can expect that there are probably uh, some of those uh, types of activities that may follow in the future. So looking at the top 10 most probed ports um, at the top of the list, port 23 followed by 53413 UDP. Um, of course, 23 being Telnet, uh, 53413 UDP is a backdoor associated with Netis routers, uh, followed by port 80 TCP and then 22 TCP. Uh, 3389, that's remote desktop protocol. 445 TCP, still that config or up stuff, stuff out there. 53 UDP, which is uh, associated with DNS and uh, likely scanning to look for uh, DNS servers that can be used as uh, reflectors in denial of service attacks. Uh, 1433, that's Microsoft SQL database. And then 1911 TCP. This one really popped up a, you know, a lot of uh, positions, 389 positions, relatively speaking. And uh, we'll take a quick look at that, but it turns out that is, again, research activity innocuous. And then the next one, port 123 UDP, that activity is likely associated with uh, identifying, first of all, the, uh, the way that uh, network time protocol works, uh, some of the activity is actually associated with legit legitimate time servers, but uh, some of that is also associated with scanners looking for time servers that can be used for reflective denial of service attacks. So looking at uh, the scan probes on port 1911 a little more closely, uh, you can see here there were some really defined and periodic scanning activities. It looks like there was a little bit of a space in the last week or so, but nevertheless, this is associated with a uh, known researcher organization that, uh, to our knowledge, has no uh, malicious intent. Now, there are some little spikes here and there that uh, show up in between, and so um, while they're not significant in nature, that is in terms of very aggressive scanning activities, they may in fact be uh, looking for this. Now, 141911 is associated with an industrial control system or protocol used in industrial control systems, so it's one that, um, you know, obviously that uh, folks are going to be sensitive about um, in the manufacturing or industrial. It's, uh, Niagara Tritium Fox right. is the protocol. Yeah, thank you. Uh, looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, and uh, again, at the top of the list here, and actually overwhelmingly, port 23 has well more than 50% of it. I'm going to say maybe almost 70% uh, of the, uh, of the uh, circle here, followed by 53, 413 UDP, and then um, uh, a few other, 445, 80 TCP, and then uh, 22 TCP with some uh, UDP and ICMP in between. Uh, not a lot of movement there, but looking at port 23 TCP, both the, uh, on the top graph showing the number of probes and the bottom graph showing the number of sources doing that probing activity, 
we still have a significant number of sources up on the order of about 250,000 sources perhaps scanning on an hourly basis. So I guess it's dropped down to maybe about 200,000 sources. But that's still, you know, obviously a very significant number and relatively stable. Uh, whereas the number of probes has gone down uh, a little bit so that the, uh, they're uh, acting a little more quietly that is a possibility that these devices are, you know, busy doing other activities, maybe denial of service attacks or some other activity that's slowing them down and uh, could be a uh, reason that the uh, scanning activity isn't as prominent. So uh, nevertheless, there are an awful lot of devices out there that are infected uh, with this uh, botnet malware, uh, perhaps a, a good of portion of it. Lizard stressor, Yep. that family we talked about. Um, I don't know what proportion of that, you yes. know. Um, you know, we often talk sure about the are. denial of service attack activity, but that doesn't mean that these devices couldn't be used for other purposes. Oh, yeah, you could use them They're for poking whatever. holes Bitcoin through firewalls. Whatever yeah. you want to do on them. Really, it's like a Linux machine. You could do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, and also, scan probes on port 22 TCP. Now, this is actually a number of sources probing on port 22 TCP. And over the last week or so, we have seen a uh, basically a doubling of the a number of sources, somewhere between 2,000 and 2,600 or so sources uh, in a given hour, and it's a little bit spiky. But um, I think some of those spikes are actually uh, associated with research activities, whereas the more steady activity likely associated with the botnets that are uh, that are out there. So, nevertheless, uh, port 22 is being targeted. Oftentimes, this is again brute force password guessing activities against uh, devices. And I just thought it'd be uh, uh, useful to take a look at a geographic distribution. I don't think there's anything really notable about this distribution. Perhaps a little heavier uh, density in China, and um, it looks like uh, perhaps south of China there, and uh, in Europe. And but you know, generally speaking, it looks like the populated areas have the uh, have the most infections. Surprise, surprise. And then looking at port 53413, this is again looking at the number of sources that are doing the scanning activity. This is a case where it's a backdoor in the NetIS routers. They basically encapsulate the, uh, the script that they want those routers to, uh, to execute in a packet, toss it out there. The number of sources has gone up significantly over the last week or so here, perhaps doubling over the last two weeks from say uh, 20,000 sources, we're up around 60, so it's tripled actually over the last couple of weeks to around 60,000 sources. This is one of the highest levels that we've seen on this port as well, so uh, perhaps is, even associated like with the same This vulnerability's been out for a while. Is yeah. it surprising that it hasn't been further addressed by the vendor? Well, this is a case where these devices are sold with no real patch management strategy or, or process around that. Most people install them in their homes and, you know, so long as it's working, they just uh, forget that it's there and patch management is almost Whereas non-existent. Will dial home for upgrades? Some of the newer devices are, in fact, dialing home for upgrades. In fact, uh, it, I'm glad you pointed point this out. If you go out to buy a device, I think that's one of the fundamental things you look for yeah. is that it has automatic updates associated with it. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I was just shopping for a device recently. I'm not going to mention brand names because I'm not here to promote things, but the um, it, that is something you want to look for is that it does automatic updates. Yeah, absolutely. And then, it, um, you know, considering we're talking about all the scanning activity, I thought it'd be useful to take a look at how much of the activity on the network is actually probing activity. So this is, you know, based, based on our vantage point, but taking a relative measurement that is for each connection attempt that takes place, how many of them are associated with scanning activity. And over the last, you know, several months, you know, we're hovering around between 6% and 8%, and then just over the last couple of weeks here, because of the significant increase in probing on 
port 23, in particular port 22 and, and the 53.413, we've seen that spike up to as high as almost 12% of the activity on the internet is actually associated with probing activities. Now, this is combined with all the other ports that are uh, involved in that activity as well. So it's not just those, uh, those handful. And that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And once again, thank you, Robbie, for your email. Uh, it turned out to be a very good story, in my opinion. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube, as well as an audio podcast on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. And I'd like to thank you, John Markley, for joining us today. Thanks, John Hogeboom. Yep. Thank you, Joe Harton. I'm Brian Rixrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity. <laughs>